0: So, tonight marks the halfway point past the halfway point of the retreat. And we can see that as a glass half empty, or a glass half full. Half of the retreat has already passed, glass half empty. Half of your time here still remains, glass half full. I invite you to allow the knowledge of the halfway point to strengthen your resolve, knowing that retreat time is a very highly invaluable contemplative time, that you have allowed yourself and carved out of your lives to be here, away from your life, from your loved ones, and knowing that you're doing this work, not just for yourself, but for the people that you care about, your loved ones, and all beings. So before I start my talk, I wanted to, to note the halfway point, being halfway point of the retreat. So tonight's topic is uh, contemplating dukkha as motivation for liberation. So I figured it's halfway point already, you're deepening, it's time to dive into dukkha. It's dukkha time. Are you ready? Yes, you're ready. Great. Let's dive into dukkha. An alternate topic um, or title for the talk also is First Noble Truth as Motivation for Third Noble Truth. Dukkha, liberation, first noble truth, third noble truth. And we've got motivation in the middle. So let me start by defining my terms. First let's start by noble truth. Or ennobling truths that enable ennobling. It's not a high and mighty idea, some some truth out there up there that has been passed down from from the divine, but really just simple observations that we can make as human beings in our lives. They're very accessible. These noble truths. And uh, there's a beautiful story. Um, from A Monastery Within, a book by Gil Fransdell, which I would like to share with you. The story is called Alternative to Philosophy. After lunch one day, the abbess and a visiting philosophy professor went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked, I'm interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, we don't rely on any philosophy at the monastery. But, continued the professor, Everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has a philosophy with which they make sense of their life and their purpose. It's different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, pesky professor, uh, You must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, as we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we had become after our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying from hunger, the need to feed the child is obvious to the parent. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy at the monastery, the monks and nuns are trained to develop to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. Let me repeat the last line. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade. On a hot day. So I offer that as a way to see the noble truths or the ennobling truths. Some things that you can see for yourselves as you're aware, as you're sensitive. And the truth of dukkha, the first noble truth, is just that is not something that is given to us and you have to you have to see but it's just if you open your eyes and you're aware you will just see. So just to cover the bases the four noble truths are dukkha has to be understood. That's the noble truth of dukkha. Its origin has to be abandoned. The origin being the craving, that being the second noble truth. The third noble truth, its cessation has to be realized. And that's liberation, which is the theme of this retreat. And the fourth noble truth, and the path to this realization has to be developed. And that is the noble, eightfold path, which is what we're practicing here. So, let's move on to defining dukkha. What is dukkha? The principle of Dukkha is one of the most important concepts in Buddhism. If you haven't noticed already, you probably have. The Buddha said, I've taught one thing and one thing only, Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. Dukkha has been translated often as suffering, plain and simple, suffering. Other translations have been unease, friction, stress, disharmony, uncomfortable, and unsatisfactoriness. Bhikkhu Bodhi states, the Pali word dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it means something deeper than pain and misery. It refers to a basic unsatisfactoriness, running through our lives, the lives of all but the enlightened. Sometimes this unsatisfactoriness erupts into the open as sorrow, grief, disappointment, or despair. But usually it hovers at the edge of our, aver- of our awareness as a vague, unlocalized sense that things are never quite perfect never fully adequate to our expectations of what they should be. David Loy says, although dukkha is usually translated as suffering, that is too narrow. The point of dukkha is that even those who are wealthy and healthy experience a basic dissatisfaction, dis-ease, which continually festers, that we find life dissatisfactory, one damn problem after another, I like that, one damn problem after another, is not accidental, because it is the nature of the unawakened sense of self to be bothered about something. I also appreciate another definition, as we're going through definitions, offered by Lee Brasington. I will read excerpts from this. So, he says, well, in a number of discourses, the Buddha says, what is the noble truth of dukkha? Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha death is Dukkha, grief, lamentation, bodily pain, mental pain, and despair are Dukkha. Having to associate with what is displeasing is Dukkha, separation from what is pleasing is Dukkha. Not getting what one wants is two Dukkha. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are Dukkha. So he says, okay, well, let's try an English word. But instead of using the whole Sentence above. Let's work with having the flu is dukkha, losing your sunglasses is dukkha. So okay, let's, let's first let's try suffering in 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 these two you know common concepts that we're familiar with in in English. You know, we lose our sunglasses, we catch the flu, right? We can we can relate to it. Yeah, most of us ever lost sunglasses. Yeah. Um, so okay, he says let's try that. So having the flu is suffering. Okay. I'll go with that. Losing your sunglasses is suffering. Not really, you wimp. I mean, if that, losing your sunglasses is suffering. So, okay, well, let's try, let's try stress. Having the flu is stress. Okay, well, maybe having the flu is stressful. Okay, that kind of works. Losing your sunglasses is stress or, or stressful. Well, if losing your sunglasses is stressful, you really need a vacation. So that doesn't quite work either that that word so so let 's try something else let's try um unsatisfactory having the flu is unsatisfactory yeah it's a little it's a little weird to as a matter of speech right in English having the flu is unsatisfactory you don't go, you know, go around and tell that to friends um, losing your sunglasses is unsatisfactory. Yeah, it doesn't quite work either. It's 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 a little weird. So he says, "Well, let's go back to what the the word actually is or was. The the, the word dukkha, what it meant. So originally, it meant dirty hole in Pali. and that would refer to an axle hole in a cartwheel, wheel, where the axle went, and and you know there was a hole holding the axle." But in order to get a good ride, it would have to put a lot of grease. But the grease would, would actually collect even more gravel and dust. So it would just get dirty, and, and the ride would be rough, and there would be friction. So you get the picture, kind of a mess. So he says, okay, well, now we know what the concept is. How about we try um, something like, uh, well, actually, let's try having the flu is a dirty hole. doesn't work. Losing your glasses is a dirty hole. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work either. So he says, okay, what, what's, what is that kind of equal to in, in the English language? Um, well, how about, how about bad space? Something like it puts you in a bad space. Having the flu is a bad space. Yeah. Losing your sunglasses is a bad space. Yeah. How about it puts you in a bad space? Having the flu put me in a bad space. Okay, it's, Still kind of awkward. Losing your sunglasses puts you in a bad space. He, uh, st- getting there, not quite. And now we've gotten really far from suffering. And he says, okay, so how about, what is the equivalent of something that put sh- puts you in a bad space? Well, how about bummed me out? Oh, that really bummed me out. How about shorten it to bummer? So, having the flu is a bummer. (laughs) Isn't it? Having the flu is a bummer. Losing your sunglasses is a bummer. He says, okay, now let's try it in that original uh, sutta. What is the noble truth of dukkha? Birth is a bummer. (laughs) Aging is a bummer. Illness is a bummer. Death is a bummer. Grief, lamentation, bodily pain, mental pain, and despair are all bummers. (laughs) Having to associate with what is displeasing is a bummer. Separation from what is pleasing is a bummer. Not getting what wants, that too, is a bummer. In brief, the five aggregates subject to grasping are all all bummers. (laughs) So he says, now, actually, this is good, because it's a noun, which which is what dukkha is, so bummer is a noun, so so we're good with that. And uh, we've also succeeded in, in capturing an important teaching of the Buddha, that that dukkha is not, is not part of the object, it's part of the mind, right? A bummer is, is you get bummed out, right? It's, 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 you get bummed out about it, so we've captured that. Like, bummer, I lost my sunglasses at the beach. So he continues. So let's try it for the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth, dukkha, bummers happen. <laughs> second noble truth, the origin of dukkha, craving causes bummers. (laughs) The third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha, with the cessation of craving comes the cessation of bummers. And the path, the fourth noble truth, the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha becomes the noble eightfold path leads to the cessation of bummers. A couple more things that I think really validate the use of bummers. Um, I teach only dukkha and the end of dukkha. I teach only bummers. (laughs) And the end of bummers. (laughs) And in Sutta Nipata 1215... One has no uncertainty or doubt that when there is arising, only dukkha is arising, and that when there is passing away, only dukkha is passing away. Now let's try the new word we have. One has no uncertainty or doubt that when there is arising, only bummers are arising, and and that when there is passing away, only bummers are passing away. I'll offer you one last one. May you be free from bummers and the causes of bummers. (laughs) So um, I'll just read his last sentence here to give Lee Brazington full credit for for this brilliant exposition. Um, Well, maybe bummer is too flippant for such a serious subject. I seriously doubt it will make it into the academic world. I've adopted it. I I like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm certain I won't be seeing any translations by Bhikkhu Bodhi or Tinnasara Bhikkhu using bummer rather than suffering or stress. But maybe just thinking about dukkha from a hippie slang perspective will help you more deeply understand what Buddha was teaching. So I like that because I think it covers both the we already have this severity and seriousness of the topic with, with suffering and unsatisfactoriness, and you know, it is serious. And also there, there are these bummers of life that are not as heavy as suffering, they're just bummers, and those are dukkha also. So let's give them credit, let's recognize them as, as dukkha, as bummers, right? Those are dukkha, that we have, we, they're, they're, they're everywhere in our lives. So, the truth of dukkha is not pessimistic, but realistic. I, uh, I found it liberating to hear the first noble truth. I personally had a niggling feeling that, that there's a lot of dissatisfaction in life, and it's just not me who's experiencing them, that it's part of fabric of life, and probably other people are having the same kind of sufferings than that I do. So seeing the the teaching on, on on dukkha laid out, ah was actually a relief. Ah, I'm not doing anything wrong. This is just the way life is. This is the fabric of life. You can do everything right and this is just the way it is. Tinasar Bhikkhu says You've probably heard the rumor that life is suffering, that, that life is suffering, in quotes, is Buddhism's first principle, the Buddha's first noble truth. It's a rumor with good credentials spread by well-respected academics and Dharma teachers alike. But a rumor nonetheless. The truth about the noble truths is far more interesting. The Buddha taught four truths, not one about life. There is suffering, There is a cause for suffering, there is an end of suffering, and there is a path of practice that puts an end to suffering. These truths, taken as a whole, are far from pessimistic. They're a practical, problem-solving approach, the way a doctor approaches an illness or a mechanic, a faulty engine. You identify a problem and look for its cause. You then put an end to the problem by eliminating the cause. While Paula Rahula says on this topic, first of all, Buddhism is neither pessimistic nor optimistic. If anything at all, it is realistic. For it takes a realistic view of life and of the world. It looks at things objectively. It does not falsely lull you into living in a fool's paradise nor does it frighten and agonize you with all kinds of imaginary fears, fears and sins. It tells you exactly and objectively what you are and what the world around you is and shows you the way to perfect freedom, peace, and happiness. So in Buddhist um, you, you know, there are lots of lists and categorizations and all of that. Everything is very neat and clean. I think the the Buddha obviously had an amazing mind and categorized everything. So, so there are three kinds of dukkhas, so that we really get to, to, to explore them. The first one is dukkha-dukkha, which is ordinary suffering. We'll talk about each of these more, but just to give you the list. The second one is viparinama dukkha, which is the dukkha produced by change. And the second one is parallels and is associated with the second characteristic of anicca, of change. The third third type of dukkha is sankara dukkha, translated as the dukkha of conditioned states. And this one, the third one, relates to the third mark of of existence, the third characteristic being anatta, or not-self. So let's start with the dukkha dukkha, dukkha of ordinary suffering. This is the easiest one to see. It's the grossest one. It's the physical and mental suffering of, classically, birth, aging, illness, and death. Um, it's, it shows up, shows up as aches and pains of the body. That's dukkha. It's, it's gross. It's easy to see, right? It's, it's oh, it's bummer, right? It's um, flu, chronic illnesses, illness in general. These are dukkha dukkha. These are gross levels of, of suffering or bummers. Loss, grief, being in a painful state of mind when you're stewing in jealousy, hatred, anger, difficult states. It's painful. Dukkha dukkha. It's Also, in this category, um, the Buddha has had a sense of humor, is, is not being with what we want. So if you really like dessert and have a sweet tooth and it's not offered and you go down to the dining hall, no dessert again, ah, bummer. That's in this category of Dukkha Dukkha. Similarly in this category is if, if you want an amazing experience on the cushion, ah, let there be samadhi, let there be blah, 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 and it doesn't happen. You don't get what you want. That's a bummer. That's dukkha dukkha. The flip of that is being stuck with what you don't want. That's also in this category. Have you ever been stuck at Thanksgiving dinner with relatives you'd rather not be stuck with? Dukha, Dukha. <laughs> how about being stuck with a monkey mind that goes all over the place and you don't want it sitting on the cushion you're here to meditate duka dukkha. go away go away go away go away calm, calm. so so with that I'm going to add um, Another another item, which is the default mode network, is a dukkha. So, so what is that? So that's basically the monkey mind. Um, Matthew was talking about, um, when, when he was giving you the walking meditation instructions, he told you that in the in-between times, those are the times that your mind is going to go to its default place, like uh, everywhere, right? Those are the default places that the mind goes to. When, when for example, you're out, in the world and you're driving and just planning and thinking and this and that okay so that's the default mode of the brain and there are networks in the brain there are areas in the brain that that get activated when you're not concentrated when you're not doing something very specific the default mode uh, you get back to it after doing some concentrated task, it takes about six seconds for the mind to go back into its default mode. So what is this default mode? It's, it has to do with thinking about ourselves, selfing, thinking about the past, planning about the future. It's the problem solving, it, it, it has to do with problem solving, predicting and planning for the future, self-reflection, sense of identity, and social cognition, especially in a judgmental way. So the default mode and network, these different areas of the brain, uh, are mainly the medial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate, the lateral parietal cortex, and the hippocampus. And the medial prefrontal cortex, especially, is the selfing center is the me 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 mind center and um and it's also it gets it's it's um it's connected to the limbic system which is the flight uh fight or flight centers and the amygdala which are the fear centers so why is this interesting why is this important because that's where our mind goes by default We start judging, we start planning, we start selfing, we start doing all of this. But there is good news. So through mindfulness, there are experiments that actually show that that, um, long-term mindfulness practitioners change their default mode. Those areas of the brain don't light up. You change your default. When you're not concentrating, the mind doesn't go there different areas of the brain light up. So I thought you might be interested in this. So, alternative to the default mode network, which we all have, evolutionarily. Um, so the the um, ventral medial prefrontal cortex becomes less activated in long-term meditators. The right lateral prefrontal cortex becomes more activated, and that's an area of attentional <laughs> control. As you're sitting on the cushion, and you're trying to pay attention, and and the mind wanders, you bring it back, you bring it back. You're strengthening your attentional control, that area of your brain. The insula also gets more activated. And the insula has to do with preoception, where you're feeling your body, and especially emotional sensations, feeling sensations in your body. You wondered why there's so many instructions about feeling sensations in your body and the breath? And finally, the somatosensory cortex, which has to do with sensation processing and not judging and not evaluating, gets more activated. So all of this changes the default mode of the brain into a more receptive, a more nonjudgmental way. So so I like to add, um, I mean, as Bonnie was saying, the Buddha was the first and most excellent neuroscientist. If he was alive nowadays, I think he would have added default network defied Default mode network is dukkha to his list. Because I think it's, it's, it's been hypothesized that the DMN is the cause of suffering. It's the cause of a lot of rumination and planning and selfing and all of that. So moving on to the second type of dukkha, the dukkha of change. Or viparinama dukkha. So, this is a little more subtle than the first type of dukkha, which is just dukkha dukkha, coarse level of dukkha. It's uh, the stress and anxiety of trying to hold on to what you want. And without investigation, it's a little harder to see this one. Because at first, Things seem attractive and great. Possessions, relationships are attractive. Ooh, it's going to make me happy. This new car is going to make me happy. Mm, this is good. And then when circumstances change and you get a dent on the car and, and the relationship changes, you realize after a few months of bliss, you realize, oh, the person that you love actually has a personality. As Jack was talking about it this morning, you get closer and oh, things are not as perfect as they seemed, darn. Um, That's the dukkha of of impermanence, of of change. Things are changing, not as satisfactory anymore. Or uh, my favorite example, eating ice cream. It's pleasant for a while and then it ends bummer (laughs) if you want to continue the pleasure you have to eat a lot more ice cream a lot more a lot more a lot more and either you get a cold headache or you finish the tub and you say what what a pig and that's also dukkha (laughs) you can tell i teach deep dharma from deep experience ah dukkha dukkha Um, Pamu Chodron describes this type of suffering as uh, the suffering of trying to hold on to things that are always changing. I've also heard it described as a rope burn, which I love. You know, when when you're holding a a rope, a big rope, and you're trying so hard to hold on to it for it not to change, but it's moving, it's changing, and, and your hands start to burn That's rope burn, when you're trying to stop the change, and you can't, and it hurts, it's dukkha. There is a uh, beautiful uh, part of poem by Hafiz, the Persian poet, which I will read for you first in Farsi, because I can. Maybe I can't, I don't know. The flower smile bears no vow of faithfulness. Bewail nightingale as your loving devotion is misplaced. Let me read that one more time. The flower's smile bears no vow of faithfulness. Bewail, nightingale, as your loving devotion is misplaced. The third type of dukkha is the dukkha of conditioned states, which is the deepest dukkha. It's the worst anguish. And it's connected to anatta. The sankhara dukkha is uh, referred to as all-pervasive suffering. It's the most subtle, the, su- the most subtle type of suffering, and it includes a basic unsatisfactoriness that pervades all of existence, all forms. On this level, the term indicates a lack of satisfaction that things will never measure up to our expectation or standards. This is in a way like uh, when you plan a vacation in your mind. The vacation itself, has it ever measured up exactly to what you've planned? or a party, or, or anything, when you plan it, it's perfect. The reality of, uh, reality of it doesn't usually live up, does it? This is a sense that at the core, life is empty, and no amount of money, power, or fame can ever fill that hole, that sense of, you know, something is not quite right, something is missing, it's not quite perfect, is, has also been likened to the existential angst. Um, usually the void at this core becomes so uncomfortable that we try to avoid it and evade it completely, and try to identify with something else that might give us stability and security or at least a sense of it and we can try to keep keep trying to fill up the hole but it's a bottomless pit nothing that we can ever grasp Or achieve can ever feel this sense of lack because it's at the core, it's just something is missing, it's just not quite right. Not no matter what we do, what we are, what we succeed at, what we have, it doesn't quite, it's not quite enough, and you can see why this is related to anatta, sense of not-self, because there there is emptiness at the core. So this sense of dukkha really resembles that, and it comes from that truth. So how do we go about contemplating dukkha? Well, you don't exactly need to look for it, because it's all around us, it's all all in us. It presents itself in so many shapes and forms and colors and experiences. It's in your body, your thoughts, your emotions, your mind states. Bummers are everywhere. Bummers are us. Maybe I'll make a sticker. I don't think people will get it. Bummers are us. So what you really need to do is just to be alert and recognize when it comes up. We're often in the midst of suffering, in the midst of dukkha, without recognizing it, without knowing what's really going on. You know, we might be in a difficult mind state and just go along with it instead of say, ah, dukkha is like this, suffering is like this. Pain is like this. Just that. Just recognizing it. It allows some spaciousness. Ah, it's not personal. It's just just this. It's a mark of existence. So not running away from it, as Bonnie was talking about, experiential avoidance not trying to avoid it not trying to avoid this experience and not trying to put your nose in it like I'm going to contemplate Dukkha until it kills me you don't have to do that either just being open to it just observing, just seeing it's like this it's like this ah, this too is Dukkha this too is Dukkha befriending it not rushing to change, not rushing to move, not rushing to run away from the the dissatisfaction or the emptiness or the pain and to numb ourselves with the various usual things we use, eating, distractions, drugs, addictive behavior. That's how they start, trying to numb ourselves to the pain. It's much healthier just to be with it. Ah, this is too, this is pain, this is dukkha, it's like this. And it's okay. It's not just me. It's the human condition. Another way to acknowledge dukkha and contemplate dukkha is simply ignore, using the word ouch, 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 this hurts. Ouch. And notice when you say, ouch, your hand, or at least my hand wants to come up, like, ouch, this hurts. Naturally, compassion wants to come up and support you. Ouch, this hurts. And compassion is a natural answer to to Dukkha, it comes up. And not thinking that if you did everything perfectly right, your life would have been perfect. I think there's a lot of dukkha that comes from the image that TV and media has offered us of the rich and famous, happy stories, happy families on TVs when we were growing up, imagining that, oh, life can be perfect. I'm probably doing something wrong. Everybody else has it all figured out. They're perfect. They're happy all the time. I'm the only one who doesn't have it together. Guess what? I think in olden times when people lived in smaller societies and villages, their view and their expectations of life probably was more realistic because they saw the reality of life. Okay, so-and-so might have five cows, but also, ow, his wife is sick. You know, you would see, you would see that. You wouldn't just see the good, you would see the mix of, of the, the difficulties in people's lives. Whereas with TV and media, oh, you just see flashy, beautiful, whatever it is. Joseph Campbell says, the first step to the knowledge of wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm, as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is, and it cannot be changed. Those who think they know how the universe should have been, had they created it without pain, without sorrow, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it as it is with the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of how it is. So the first noble truth are motivations for the third noble truth, liberation. And there are two types of liberation that I would like to talk about. The first one briefly, as Jack will be talking much more about liberation of the heart tomorrow. As we talked about, ouch, and thanks to Kathy for for suggesting that today. As I was crowdsourcing part of my talk, I learned from Bonnie. And Kathy offered ouch as, as recognizing Dukkha. So seeing the truth of suffering opens the heart to compassion. It's it's the natural response that comes from seeing suffering in ourselves and in others. It helps us open up to common humanity, how it's not just us, but it's the state of of life, of being, of existence for everyone. It's not easy. It can be tough. The question shifts from why me to why not me when you realize that dukkha is a mark of existence and it can happen. Anything can happen to anyone at any time. There is a wonderful video on, on YouTube, and I'll try to describe it to you. The, it's called Get Service. <clears throat> so it shows this young dude who gets up in the morning, gets into his car, and um, he's trying to back up from his driveway. And the first thing that happens is this kid behind him on roller skate comes and crosses his path and he almost runs into him and, and this young dude is upset like, oh, you know, don't you have a father? Don't you, you know, don't you have parents? Ah! So he's driving, he's, you know, he's in his head, he's like, ah, oh, you know, the way, the same way that probably we get up in the morning and we're trying to get to work and blah, 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 and we see everything as obstacles. Okay, he sees everything as obstacles. He goes to, uh, he goes to the parking lot of, uh, um, uh, of, uh, um, uh, coffee place what's the famous coffee place i'm and drawing a blank starbucks starbucks thank you <laughs> uh, thank you yeah great i don't drink coffee that's why um so he goes to, to the parking lot of starbucks and um and in the parking lot he's about to park and this other car pulls in into the spot that he sees and it's like oh bummer darn dukkah bummer And he goes and parks and goes in, and there's a long line. And you see these thought bubbles now, and he's like, oh, long line, just the last thing I need. He's waiting, waiting, waiting. Okay, he gets in front of the line, and just as he's about to order, this guy comes and tries to add cookies to his latte, and like, okay, okay, fine. He orders, he's cranky, like, okay, fine. He goes and sits down, he's sitting in the coffee shop, just impatiently waiting for his latte, and then... And then this cool dude comes up wearing these dark glasses. And then there's music in the background. And this, this cool dude offers him this pair of glass, uh, glasses, magic glasses. Well, you don't know yet they're magic glasses. It just says, get service, question mark. So he says, oh, maybe if I wear these cool glasses, I get quicker service or something. Like, okay, whatever, I'll put them on. So he, ta- he takes the glasses, he puts them on, and he starts to look around in the coffee shop. And he sees that with these glasses, there are these pop-outs with people. So the guy who cut in front of him in line says, is fighting, he's fighting cancer. He looks around, he looks at another person, says, has lost his job, has two kids. Looks at another person, sees another label popping up about that person, has fear of commitment. He takes them off, like, whoa, this is too much. I, I can't deal with this. He puts them on again, and again he sees more, like all these people who are obstacles on his way. He sees all the problems, all the suffering in their lives. He runs out of the coffee shop. He runs into the woman who took his spot, parking spot in the morning, and he was upset. And he sees just lost beloved friend, is grieving. He takes the glasses off. He just can't deal with it anymore. He drives back home. He gets back into his driveway. For one last moment, he decides just to put them on, just to see that kid in the morning who was driving by, who was riding on the skateboard. And on him, the pop-up bubble is, just needs someone to care. He puts the glasses back. And he says, hey buddy, you want to hang out? So a realization of dukkha is like that. When you realize that it's not just you. It's everyone who may not know each other's stories, but we can be sure that we have them. I may not know the stories of your lives, you may not know mine, but you can be sure that I have suffered, that I will suffer. I can be sure that you have suffered, every single one of you. You have pains and sorrows, and we're all in this boat together. It's the web of humanity that connects us our human condition. And the mark of our human family is the shared suffering that we all have, or have had, or will have. Nobody's immune to it, nobody. The first noble truth is also a motivation for liberation through wisdom. And let us not think of liberation as this intimidating, big thing that can only happen to a few. Let us think of it as a possibility of a little more freedom, a little more space in our lives. Let us keep it as a goal that keeps moving, a goal that is achievable, and then when we travel further on the path, the goal keeps moving. And also, let us keep the aspiration of full liberation just as that, as an aspiration that it is possible, that it can happen. It has happened to a human being, the Buddha, and various stages of liberation do happen to people amongst us, even in the West. So it's not such a far-out ideal. By sitting silently in meditation, and not running from the whole at the core, at the sense of emptiness. If we can learn not to run away, but to stay with the uncomfortable feelings and to befriend them, something can happen to that core and to you. Insofar as the whole That whole is really what you are. The curious thing about emptiness is that it's not really a problem. The problem is that we think it's a problem. And we try to escape from it and run away from it. As David Loy puts it, some Buddhist sutras talk about Pavarati, as turning around that transforms the festering hole at my core into a life-healing flow, which springs up spontaneously from I know not where. Instead of being experienced as a sense of lack, the empty core becomes a place where there is now awareness of something other than greater than my usual sense of self. I can never grasp that greater than. I can never understand what it is. And I do not need to, because I am an expression of it. My role is to manifest it. So with that, let's sit for a moment. Through many births, I have wandered on and on, searching for, but never finding, the builder of this house. To be born again and again is suffering. House builder, you are seen. You will not build a house again. All the rafters are broken. The rich pole is destroyed. The mind, gone to the unconstructed, has reached the end of craving. Thank you for your mindful attention.